Good morning. I hope um, everybody had a good week this past week, and I hope that by your participation and your attendance in the worship service this morning that you've been inspired and that you've been encouraged to be around other Christians. There are a number of people in the Bible who exemplified great faith. In fact, we have an entire chapter in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that specifically recognizes certain men and women for their acts of faith, and justifiably so. However, this morning I want us to study a woman who's not mentioned in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. However, she's a woman who I think exemplified great faith. In fact, her story and her encounter with Jesus is one of my favorite accounts in the Bible. And even though she's not named specifically, she's mentioned three times in four of the Gospels, and her story is important. And I think that it's important because a lot of people today, in some form or in some fashion, can relate to her situation and her story to some degree. And that is the faith of the unclean woman found in Mark chapter 5, verses 24 through 34. Now, Matthew mentions this woman, Luke mentions this woman, but Mark provides the most detailed account of her story, so we'll spend the majority of our time in Mark's account. But before we do, we're introduced to her in verse 25. I want to back up and look in verse 21 to provide a little context of the story here. It says, Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue named Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be healed, and she will live. Now, this is during a time of a heightened popularity for Jesus. Jesus and his ministry was going about. He was finding the downtrodden, the sick, the lame, and he was performing miracles establishing himself as the deity, as the Son of God. And word was circulating around the community of his interest and of his care for those who were sick and who were lame. And so he was becoming to get a lot of popularity, a lot of notoriety. And it says that this man by the name of Jairus approaches Jesus. Now I think it's interesting that the scriptures specify that he was a ruler of the synagogue. And that's really important because, remember, as Jesus is gaining popularity, so is the target that's growing on his back from the religious leaders of the Jews at that time. They didn't like him. They thought he was bucking up against the hierarchy, and they were trying to find a way to get rid of him. But here we have a man who's in a desperate situation. His daughter is imminently dying, and this is a dire situation. And so he did what any father would do. He put a cast aside every care or concern and to try to find the only hope that he could find to give his daughter a chance. And so he publicly, in front of this great multitude, again, that's important, he goes in front of all these people, putting his reputation, putting his religious status on the line, pleading, imploring, prostrating at the feet of Jesus that he would save his daughter. So we really see what a dire situation this is, and we really see a desperate father. It goes on to say in verse uh, 24, So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and enthronged him. That word enthronged there means to press upon all sides. 
So Jesus accepts this invitation to go to this little girl. And as he's going through the crowds, the disciples are trying to make a way, push people out of the side because people are pressing upon Jesus. They want to see what he looks like. They, they're interested in him. They're interested in the popularity. And in the course and scope of his travels to this little girl, I want us to notice that there's an intervening event. Someone intervenes in this situation. In verse 25, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. And she spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So again, think of the situation. Think of the chaos. Think of the circumstances that were in here. And as everyone make way for Jesus, we got to get to the little girl. They're pushing people aside. This woman who has a disease approaches Jesus and in her mind thinks, if I can just touch his clothes, I can be cured of my disease. Now, I want us to spend a little time this morning trying to break this down a little bit. The scripture says she had a flow of blood for 12 years. And virtually pretty much any Bible scholar that you look at is going to tell you that she had a disease where she perpetually bled from her womb. And that was a great burden to her and her society, and especially the society that she lived in. When you look at the word disease in the Bible, if you look at the Greek word, it comes from the word mastix. It means to whip or to scourge. And there was a stereotype in the society. There was a superstition, if you will, in that society that if you were someone who was sick, if you had a disease, that God was somehow cursing you that you somehow did something to defile God and God was rejecting you and that was a punishment upon you. But we know that that's not the case. We live in the flesh. We have human bodies. These bodies get sick because of the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And that was her situation. She had a disease. And I want us to think a little bit about the implications that that had on her life. Luke tells us and even Mark tells us as well that she spent all of her money and her resources trying to get help and a treatment. Have you ever met anybody who had a disease that they did everything they could? They flew to Mexico. They, they did every type of treatment, every type of service you could imagine. That's the number one most important thing in your mind is your health because nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. You've got to be healthy. You've got to be able to sustain life. And so what this tells us is that she's a destitute woman. She doesn't have anything. And because she has this condition, it can probably be reasonably inferred that she didn't have a husband. Because under the Jewish law, she was deemed to be ceremonially unclean. And we keep referring to her as the unclean woman. And there's a stigma to that, isn't there? There's a stereotype to that. And I'm telling you this morning that she's not unclean in the sense that God looked at her in her state, in her condition, and looked at her and rejected her as sin. God didn't look at her and think of her as any less of a soul than anyone else that was walking on the earth at that time. She was unclean because under the Levitical law, she was declared to be unclean because of this bleeding condition. So think about the physical implications of that. The constant pain, the constant discomfort that somebody lives in. Have you ever met anybody who lives with persistent, constant pain? It takes a psychological toll on an individual just as much as it does a physical toll on an individual. This was her life. Think about the emotional implications that this had in her life. 
She's someone who probably didn't have a relationship with a man. She didn't have a husband. Why? Because she had this condition. Think of the social aspects that it had in her life. If you were someone deemed unclean, you didn't just get to go in society and go to the marketplace and act like everything was cool. You were supposed to proclaim and announce to everybody that you were unclean. You had to make a public spectacle of your uncleanliness. And people didn't want anything to do with you. They shunned you. They rejected you. Because if you came in contact with somebody else being an unclean person, that required that person to go through a series of rituals under Levitical law to reestablish their cleanliness. She was a social reject for 12 years. And what's so sad about her condition was, it says that she perpetually had this condition for 12 years. Under the Levitical law, if you were deemed unclean as a woman for bleeding, you had to wait a certain period of time. Then you had a certain bathing process. And then you had to go to a Levitical priest and offer two pigeons and two turtles as a sacrifice to be able to reintegrate yourself back into society and back into community worship. But the problem with her situation is there was never a break in her bleeding, and so she was not allowed into the temple. She was not allowed into the synagogue. She was not allowed to be among the people. She was outcast. And I think that it's important that when we study this, you know, we read the story and it's a heartwarming story, but it's just as important that we try to understand the social situation, the physical situation, the emotional situation that this woman was in. In Leviticus chapter 15, verse 25, if a woman have an issue with her blood, many days out of the time of her separation, or if it runs beyond the time of her separation, all of these days of the issue of her uncleanliness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be deemed unclean. So that was the statute that declared the cleanliness laws. We go on in Leviticus chapter 15, verse 31. Thus shall, thus shall ye separate the children of Israel from their uncleanliness, that they die not in their uncleanliness, that they, defile, that they defile my tabernacle that is among them. So if you, again, if you were declared unclean, you were not allowed in community worship. You were not allowed in the temple. So while everybody else was in corporate worship here and was able to enter the temple, was able to enter the synagogue, she would have been on the outside here looking in. The loneliness the isolation, the lack of family, the persistent pain, the rejection, the scarlet letter that she bore. We see in verse 27, as the story picks up, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I may only touch his clothes... I shall be made well. And so this woman does something. She sneaks up on Jesus. And the question that I ask myself is, well, did she break the law? She's deemed under the Levitical laws unclean. And then she's going to sneak up on Jesus, holy deity. And not only is she just going to bump into him, she's going to actively reach out and to try to grab his garment. It's a recognition. It's an illustration of in her vulnerability, in that populace of people, to take that act of faith to touch Jesus. 
You know, I, um, it says that she heard about Jesus. I'm sure that she heard the stories about Jesus touching the leper, someone no one would touch. I'm sure she heard the stories about Jesus rubbing the, the mud on the eyes of a blind man. I'm sure she heard the stories of Jesus going to the pools of the sick and the lame and the paralytic and taking an interest in them and healing them. And she believed it. She had faith in it. And she reached out and she touched Jesus, his garment. Jesus made a statement that he didn't come to destroy the law and the prophets, but he came to fulfill it. And this is an example of us of, of people who were dirty and unclean by sin. She's really a representation of all of us coming to Jesus. And even under the old law, she was deemed unclean. Jesus had the ability to take that impurity and to make it pure. It says in verse 29, and through 30, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that the power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? She was healed when she grabbed the fringe of his garment. And that word healed there means to be made whole or to be restored. And I could imagine the fear that she's now in because now Jesus is turning around and acknowledging that someone touched him and is going to put her on the spot in front of all of these people. So all the attention that's drawn towards this little girl in this dire situation now has completely stopped and we're going to draw our attention to this social reject. And Jesus asks the question, who touched me? You know, the, the text almost seems to me to suggest, I know that Jesus was the Son of God. I know that he had innate power and ability I don't know if he knew who touched her or not. Who touched me? He said the power went out of him. I'm sure that being the son of God, he knew. But he turned around, and there she was. But he was going to use this occasion to make an example for all of those people who were in that crowd. And then it says that the disciples said this, You see that the multitude thronging you, and you say, Who touched me? Again, I think Jesus is going to use this occasion to highlight something that's very important for all of us. And he looked around and seeing her who had done this thing, but the woman fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And so she identifies herself as the person who touched his garment. Now, I want us to notice what Jesus says to her here. He says that he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. What is the first word, the first thing that Jesus calls her? He says, you're a daughter. Someone who was a societal reject, someone who didn't want anything to do with, someone who looked away when that person walked around the corner, someone who wasn't allowed in the tabernacle, someone who didn't have anybody. And then Jesus says, you're a daughter. Is that not powerful? Is that not significant? Is that not imparting to her that you are family, that you are a value, that I care about you, that you're just as important as a 12-year-old girl who's dying in her bed? I'm sure that that word daughter meant a whole lot more to her at that point in her life than maybe to some of us today. This is the first time in the New Testament 
that Jesus calls somebody a daughter. He tells her, your, my family, and your life is worth something. It's valuable. Now keep in mind, moments before, we have a religious leader of the Jews falling down and imploring with Jesus, at prostrating to Jesus, come save my daughter. And Jesus is going to take the time to acknowledge her and express to her that her life is just as important as anyone else's and that his healing of her would not cheat her like all the other physicians and doctors who took her money and resources and couldn't help. We see that Jesus later went on to heal the 12-year-old girl. It says he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kami, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl arose and walked, for she was 12 years of age, and they were overcome with great amazement. The scripture says here that this girl was 12 years old, and I think that this is important. When anytime you see the number 12 in the scripture, a lot of times it's symbolic of fullness. It's symbolic of God's fullness or completeness. So for example, Jacob had 12 sons. Those 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus chose 12 disciples to follow him. There were 12 loaves of, cake, of unleavened bread. 12 is denoted 12 times in Revelation uh, the book of Revelation as symbolic in nature as being complete or being full. And so the scripture here makes this point that she's 12 years old. And uh, it really draws my attention back to the fact that the woman who was bleeding was bleeding for how long? She was bleeding for 12 years. And so really what this is, I think, is it's a representation or a kind of a shadowing of the complete fullness and restoration that God provides people. So the number 12, I think, has some significance here throughout uh, this chapter and this event. We see Jesus' character here throughout uh, in Matthew chapter 14, verses 35 through 36. It says that uh, when, he, when the men of the place recognized him, they sent out into all the surrounding region, brought to him all that were sick, and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched it were made perfectly well. So Jesus did this on more than one occasion. This wasn't just an isolated event with this, uh, this woman and her condition. So what are some things that we can take away from the story? The first thing I think we can take away is that Jesus offers complete, full restoration to the sick. In Matthew chapter 9, we see where Jesus commissions Matthew into his ministry. And we all know that Matthew was a tax collector, and we know the, the perception that the people at that time had of tax collectors. They extorted people. They took money from people. Their own people didn't like them because they felt that they were um, betraying them, and they were an extra arm of the Roman government. But yet Jesus calls Matthew, who's a tax, tax collector, into the ministry. And just right after that, it says that people, sinners and tax collectors, I quote, approached Jesus. Because they had an interest in Jesus. And it says that the Pharisees sat back and they said, Well, why does he sit with sinners and with why does he sit with sinners and tax collectors? And this is the response that we see in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 through 13. But when he heard it, he said to those, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is the nature of Jesus. Jesus cares for all people. Everybody has a soul. Everybody is made in the image of God. And because everybody is made in the image of God, we have innate inherent value no matter what our walk of life is. And when Jesus provides a restoration, it's a complete restoration. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28, Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, and you shall have rest unto your souls. Do you think this woman in her condition when she fell down before the feet of Jesus, that Jesus was meek with her? That Jesus was lowly with her? That Jesus was accepting of her? And I want to walk back, you know, in Matthew chapter 9 here, a lot of times people will say, I heard this in a lesson recently, that, you know, Jesus sat with sinners and tax collectors, and we use that as an excuse that we can go hang out at the bar and sit with all kinds of, of vile things. That's not what that is talking about. Those people approached Jesus, and Jesus entertained them. Jesus had an interest in them because he was concerned about their soul. And so, again, we see the indiscriminate nature of Jesus. The second thing I think that we can learn from this is that Jesus cares for all people equally. And this is a verse that we hear oftentimes. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ. A diseased, ridden woman who was a social reject was as just as much value to Jesus as a girl who was dying who was the daughter of a prominent religious leader. And all people, as I mentioned earlier, have value. And you know what? That's one of the things that I appreciate about Christianity and our faith. Because we live in a culture where so many people try to divide us on so many ways. Our government, people in power, try to keep the people divided. Why? So they can maintain power. But truly in Christianity, everybody is equal. We are all equal before the eyes of God. There's not one person in this room that's better than another person. There's not one person in this room that's better than anybody carrying a sack and a bicycle walking down this road. Everybody has value in the eyes of God. Everybody has a soul, and so everybody is important. Faith in Jesus is rewarded. Luke chapter 5 and verse 20 through 23, this is the story of the paralytic man. We know that Jesus was in a building, and these people knew that Jesus was in there. And so they took his, the, their friend, who was paralyzed, and they made a hole in the roof, and they lowered him through this hole. And it says this about that, um, about that story. When he saw their faith, so when Jesus saw their faith, he said to them, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sin but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or say, Rise up and walk? So notice the first thing that Jesus says in this situation. It's another healing. These people open up a hole through the roof. They lower this paralyzed man down. And Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing that Jesus established, that his sins were forgiven. The most important thing. And just like the, just like the unclean woman, when Jesus said, Go in peace... He restored her spiritually, and he restored her physically. 
Today, Jesus can restore us spiritually. He doesn't walk on the earth performing miracles. There's not any preacher or evangelist that I know that can heal someone today. There was a purpose for miracles. Those miracles were to establish the deity of Jesus Christ while he was on this earth. But ultimately, to lead to the restoration and the reconciliation that man can have for God. And if people will choose Jesus, they can have hope in life. They can have a purpose in life. They can have a community of believers in their life. Jesus, following Jesus, is rewarding in that aspect. And lastly, everyone has issues. Luke, uh, in Luke's account of this story, he refers to her as the woman who has the issue of blood. And I'm sure that everybody in the community who looked at her, they didn't pull out the beam that was in their own eye and they rejected her but they all had issues in their life. You know, we're fixing to have an area-wide meeting. You know, we're going to go to an area-wide meeting, and we'll see lots of Christians who are in God's kingdom, and guess what? Sometimes we look at those people, and we have so much respect and admiration for them because we see their lives, but you know what? They're people, and they're battling things just like you and I are battling things. They're important. They're loved by God. They're saved by God. But sometimes our, our perception can, can fool us, and... Thank God that we have Jesus who can make intercession on our behalf. And really, the bleeding woman, she represents all of us because all of us are unclean. And if you've not come in contact with the blood of Jesus, you are, in, you are unclean. God can make you clean through baptism, through following the scriptures and becoming a part of a body of believers and in entering into his kingdom. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible, one of my favorite accounts of faith, and I hope that it was moving to you, and I hope that it's uh, a story that you can somehow in some way can connect with in your own life and give you an appreciation for the love and the compassion that Jesus has for people. At this time, we're going to offer an invitation song. If there be one who has a matter they would like to bring before the congregation, if you wish to be immersed with, with our Lord in baptism, please come as we stand and sing.